Welcome, Maximus Men, to another episode of Maximus Men Striving for Greatness. And on the podcast this week, we have editor of the Catholic Weekly, Peter Rosengren, to talk about the importance of Catholic media and media in general in today's society. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Great to have you along today. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. And before we delve into our topic for this afternoon, I'd like to encourage all of you guys to jump over to our Facebook page, Maximus Men's Driving for Greatness. Give it a like, click underneath the like button to see first so that you can actually see our posts in your newsfeed because we're still a new page. It's hard to get the algorithm working in our favor at the moment. So click to see our posts first. And we also have our group on Facebook called Maximus Men, which you can join. And all of our fortnightly challenges from our guests come out there. And the final thing that I'd like to remind you all to do, this will be airing on a Friday afternoon. So by that stage, we'll be onto our second day of the Novena leading up to the Catholic men's gathering put on by the ACBC on the 15th of August, the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady. So Men Alive with Robert Falzon and the team have put together a really beautiful scriptural novena, which has built into it opportunities to do Lectio Divina on all of the gospels for the day between the, uh, well, yesterday, Thursday and, and the 14th of August. And there's some beautiful gospels in there and also some great feast days, including St. Mary MacKillop, St. Maximilian Colby and others. So it's not too late for you to join in the novena. doesn't matter if you're a day late or you want to pack two or three days into one. Um, You'll see the posts coming through our page um, where you can join in with this novena. You'll see the whole prayer in each of the posts that we do. And we're putting those posts out at 6 a.m. every morning. Okay, so Peter, would you like to join me in prayer before we start getting into our conversation here? I'd love to, Chris. Lead on. Fantastic, fantastic. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, give you praise and thanks for this day. Give you praise and thanks for Peter and the work that he does sharing your truth through Catholic media. We pray that you may bless his work. Uh, We pray that it may touch the hearts of of Catholics and non-Catholics around the Archdiocese and beyond and and bring them closer to you, Lord. And for all the men watching or listening to this conversation, um, speak into their hearts through this conversation, Holy Spirit, um, and call us deeper into relationship with you, into a deeper level of trust in you, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and through the intercession of St. Joseph. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Well, Peter, we usually begin our interviews with some background on our guests. Uh, we, we like men to know who it is that they're listening to, um, what their story is, how they came to love Jesus and his church. 
So before we start talking about the media side of things, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of interesting content that we'd like to go into there. Tell us a bit about yourself, your background and what it was like growing up in the Rosengrin household. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm an, originally a Victorian. I was born in Victoria uh, in 1961. So um, <clears throat> I'm the oldest of four children and uh, my childhood was the 1960s, that, that decade. I grew up um, in that really remarkable time in modern history and I can remember a lot about it. Um, I, I didn't really uh, understand it that much as a child, but I could sense that things were changing incredibly. My father was a school teacher. Um, he had been a, a lay missionary in uh, Papua New Guinea for about three or four years in the 1950s. My mother was a, my mother was a school teacher. That was um, how they met. They were both teaching in the same school. Dad was also um, a very a really good uh, woodworker and builder. Um, and I remember as a child, he, he used to see, he had a woodwork shop, and I grew up with the smell of sawdust and wood shavings and and things like that. Um, he made pretty much all of the furniture for our house when he and and mum first got married. Um, and I remember as a child, he, he said to me one day, he said, do you know what the best foundation in the world for a, a presbytery or a convent is? He was talking about his experience in, in uh, Papua New Guinea. And I said, what? And he said, a Japanese machine gun nest. And they're, they're like concrete bunkers and the walls are like four feet thick. And um, he used to, um, build presbyteries and convents and school wow. on top of things like machine gun nests from the Second World War in Papua New Guinea. Um, so it was a, a very interesting time for a child to be growing up. Um, um, my parents eventually separated many years later when I was about in my 20s. And um, they did come back together when my mother was dying of cancer. But um, we had a very mixed childhood. We had on some occasions a very happy family and we were Catholic. My father was very sort of strong in his own faith. Um, and so was my mother, but they were in very different ways and they were very different personalities. And so they, they had marriage problems. And so we grew up in a, a family that was, that was both at times very happy and at times very unhappy. Um, and then the, the, when my parents um, separated after um, 20 or more years of marriage, it was a tremendously devastating time for me personally. And I also saw how the effects of that, I saw the effects of that on my brothers and sisters and on each of my parents as well. Um, and that, that gave me a... Um, it, that gave me a, a strong desire in my own heart to, um, for, it made me question marriage. Um, I wasn't sure that I could trust marriage. If my own parents of all people could not remain together, but why, who could I trust? That, that, I remember that was a very strong part of my thinking. Yeah. But the, the, the other thing that, that really sort of, uh, it made me want to do was that, or it, it I formed a resolve that if I ever did get married, then 
under no conditions. I wanted to raise my family differently. I wanted to be a different person and, and never subject um, any children that I might have to the loss of the marriage because really it's, it's people who separate and divorce them. They don't have any idea what they're doing to their children. And um, as a child, it's like, it's like having the ground removed from under your feet. Yeah. It's because your parents and their love for each other is the one thing that, you know, it's concrete, it's visible, it's there, it's daily. And if that, if a marriage breaks up, then what, what is left, you know, in the eyes of a child. And, and so uh, for me personally, um, I was very gun shy about the whole idea of marriage because, uh, you know, the, the, the people I love the most and I love my, my mother and father have, have both died now um, many years ago, but the, the, the two people I love the most, um, yeah. it made me, um, it made me completely uncertain about myself and it made me completely uncertain about marriage, which is crazy because everything I've discovered in the years since, uh, and I'm, I, I describe myself as a convert to the churches and the gospel and Christ's teaching and understanding of love and marriage and family life. Um, so I, I guess you could say in shorthand now with, um, with the benefit of hindsight, I see how many lies the devil sold me and, uh, but I'm, I'm married. Now I have two children, uh, teenagers, and I do see in myself, I have to say that, you know, um, I have to say the same sort of faults that, that I saw as a child of my parents, but I suppose I have the advantage of, um, well, I hope, I hope I've got the advantage of yeah, marriage is a great teacher of humility. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you, if you don't have any humility, if you're not willing to, to ask, it, it's difficult to forgive. It's much harder to ask to be forgiven. But, 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 um, I found faith eventually. Uh, and, um, my father taught me intellectually my faith, but my mother, the example of my mother was faith was much more an issue of the heart. Yeah. And so the two things together, both my mum and my dad, who I still miss very much, um, um, both in their own way gave me the, the foundations for, for faith in God that have got me through to the present, um, I think. And at the end, they did come back together. Um, but uh, as a result, I'd say, absolutely say to anyone who's having a difficult time in their, their marriage, you know, unless it's something that's really, really devastating, like, I, I don't know, well, alcoholism or, you know, domestic violence, mm -hmm. stick at it, do the best you can. It's conquer yourself mm -hmm. because it's not just for you. Other people are depending on you, you and your spouse, you're going to be the life raft for your children. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems we have today in our society is vast numbers of children who come from broken marriages or broken relationships. And I'm certain that there are huge numbers of men who like me spent their lives, many decades running away from our responsibility, from marriage, from, um, from trusting another person with us. It, so it was painful, but it was in the end, it was very rewarding and very fruitful outcome, I think. And I can only thank God 
insofar as they've been able to do anything which is good. But I thank God every day for my beautiful wife and our two beautiful children. I'm still, after 20 years of marriage, I'm sort of still pinching myself that I have actual children. I can't believe it. <laughs> but in any anyhow, so, um, so that it, it was a mixed picture growing up in our family. But in the end, um, I think everyone managed to find their way to where they they needed to be. Uh, thank God. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, thank you for expressing that so vulnerably and articulately. It does hit home for me because me, myself, coming back into the, into the or coming more seriously and um, I suppose you could say committing to my faith happened through witnessing some difficulties that my parents experienced mm -hmm. in their marriage. Yep. Um, and, you know, there were, there were some really tough times in there and it made me shift my identity to where it was found in them. And you, you, you sort of did touch on that even um, to yeah. having to put it into God. Like, and it was a, it was like a powerful, painful, almost ripping away experience, moving away from them and to God as, as my father and my sure foundation. Yeah. I even remember thinking myself, what you said of, if they don't get through this and it ends up with them separating or what have you, how can I ever trust, you know, the process of marriage and whether, how can I even trust my own word to commit? Like if they can't do it, how do I even, how do I ever know that I'll be able to do it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think these are very real questions. I think, I think I can't quote any statistics at you, but, um, I just on the basis of my own personal experience of life and my, you know, anecdotal observations of guys I've met over decades now, I'm um, uh, 58, so, or 58 and a half or something like that. So in a year and a half, I'm entering my seventh decade of life, I think, which has yes. been a bit of a shock for me to realize that. But one of the things um, I would say is I think the sorts of things that you and I've just been sharing and discussing I think we're not unique. I think this is a, a massively widespread problem. Um, and, and I think that the, the devastation of families and marriages, which is very much a characteristic of the last 60 or 70 years since things, a, a variety of things, including um, the legalization of basically of no fault divorce in many countries around the world, yeah. has create, created massive problems and everyone loses. Um, but sons, daughters lose, sons lose, wives lose, husbands lose, mothers lose, fathers lose. But insofar as we're talking to mainly men out there who are watching this, um, there's no doubt that when people thought they were doing something good by introducing no-fault divorce, they had no idea what they were really unleashing. And so we have men who are deeply hurt in their identity. Um, we have men who don't have fathers or have never had a father in their life to teach them the, the sorts of things that fathers are very good at teaching. Um, um, I am irrelevant to our society because I don't believe mostly what our society believes 
about things like masculinity and femininity and gender and marriage and so on. But um, I think that both men and women have strengths, gifts that they're very, they're naturally very good at. But the strength of fathers and husbands is, is partly to be strong for those who depend on them, their partners, their, their wives, their children. But, but young men need older men, which, and that's initially going to be a father, mm. to teach them about how, to, to, how the world works and how to deal with the situations they're going to face as men. We have generations of young men now who've never known that sort of presence of a father and a father's love in their life. And, and I would say amongst the millennials, I encounter all of, a lot these days, you can see the signs of it. I think it, 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 you can see the signs everywhere. So there's a real, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to come on this podcast, because there is real work to be done among men. There is a real work to be done for women too. Women have been incredibly hurt by a whole range of forces like the sexual revolution. Yeah. Um, the men have been very, very deeply hurt too. And we've all experienced it in different ways. But, but I think that the, the work of bringing men together and saying it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how bad your, your history is, there is a way forward. There, there, there is a God who loves you and there is this face, this person called Jesus, and who really is who he said he was. And you can trust God absolutely and God can change your life um, and make your life better. And it will be long, it will be slow, it'll be painful and you'll fall and you'll keep making mistakes, but you'll be going where you need to go and you will arrive at where you need to be. So um, maybe I'm getting a bit off track on this podcast, I don't know, but... <laughs> But uh, I think that that's, that's basically how I see the world. Yeah, well, I think there's a, good, there's a good segue there into the whole conversation about Catholic media that we also want to go mm. into. And that is, what role did the media play in the way that society has sort of self-destructed to, to wound men and women differently sexually and otherwise? Um, to bring us to where we are now, where as Catholics now, we're so starkly in contrast to mainstream ideas of masculinity, femininity, marriage, family. Yeah. Um, yeah. What role did the media play in all of that? Well, uh, that's a question I think about a lot. Uh, and I think it's a, an excellent question because they did have a role. The me we, the media, have had a role. I am part of the media and it's sort of an unusual way really, but um, I am definitely part of the media. I, I think that um, the media occupy a really interesting uh, role in all of what we're talking about. This is, I grew up in the sixties and as a child, I can remember my parents <clears throat> talking with horror about things like abortion. Mm. which people were increasingly campaigning for. Um, and I knew even as a child that the world was changing because it was not as my parents had experienced it growing up in their lives where things were in many, many ways, more consistent, more stable, um, uh, uh, more predictable, but it's clear that the world 
was changing. We call this, the, you know, the, the era of modernity, the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm. The change um, has been massive in every way, technologically, morally, culturally, and all the rest of it. The media have had a very interesting role, and, and their, their role is interesting because they've occupied, they've really filled um, two roles. The media are both a symptom of what's been happening in our society. And at the same time, they contribute to it because of the, the, their, their, their control of the, the flow of information, which is what people yeah. form their own attitudes about. So the media magnify what's going on <clears throat> at a deeper level in our society. But at the same time, they're active participants as well. So it's, um, it's not enough for them, for the media in general, to say, well, we only report what's going on. The media have been decisively important in um, paving the way and supporting um, incredible change, radical change to the way people think about themselves and relationships, about everything that really counts, religious faith, moral compasses, um, and the media have been a force so often, I think, for the tearing down of things. And they've never really offered any comprehensible um, or credible alternative to dismantling things like religious faith, um, moral rules and moral codes around personal relationships and family life and all the rest of it. Um, so I think they've had, the, the media have had a very destructive role. Yeah. The, the media in itself, I mean, I'm not saying the media shouldn't exist. The media need to exist. They have, a, there are a number of very important reasons why the media needs to exist. Um, uh, people depend upon the widespread dissemination of information in order to make up their minds about all sorts of things. But the information has to be true and it has to be in context. But I think the, the, the media today is in a state of decrepitude. Um, obviously, it's being um, threatened significantly by the, the rise of, of the new social media and the internet and all the rest of it. But I think the problem is that in the course of my life, I've seen the media begin to um, plummet. If, if the media ever, I mean, the media have always been in favour or against someone or something. <laughs> but the problem is they've, they've, they've switched, I would say, to becoming radical active participants in social moral change. And, and um, they've abandoned their role as being um, objective or at least reasonably objective scrutinizers of public uh, events, politics and current affairs and so on. They've now become highly belligerent activists. And the reason they're doing that, I think, without, um, I don't want to risk being simplistic, but the reason they're doing that is because almost all those who work in the media now are there because they've gone through universities, through schools of communication and media studies. And the problem there is that the humanities in general, in universities all over the Western world, the United States, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, England, those sorts of countries, have at the same time become largely suborned 
to, I don't know how you define it, kind of an, an, an anti-spirit of modernity. Um, they're they're neo-Marxist, radical feminist. I mean, if you want to study in, in you know, schools of, uh, in media studies or, or arts degrees or, you know, that come from the sort of background that journalists traditionally come from, mainly come from, well, you, you're going to find that the faculty and the curriculum and everything is dominated by neo-Marxist or uh, radical feminist or, or uh, radical green or LGBTIQ, QI, whatever the right term is, paradigms as they're described. Yeah. And you have to conduct your studies and accept the premises of those paradigms. Mm. And um, you're getting a lot of young kids coming out of media schools and they are... I think unknowingly radicalized because all they, they consume is the media for a start. Mm. And secondly, if they're coming through universities, um, they're getting what I would describe now as a politically correct and highly distorted view of history, of justice, of culture, of religious faith, of human freedom uh, and responsibility. And, and they just come out mimicking what they've been taught. They don't know anything else. So we have a problem with the, what I would describe an infantile media now constantly diving for the bottom of the barrel, um, desperate to expose the sins of anyone that it can in order to sell, in order to get revenue and income. Young people have a very romanticized view of the media. All the media is, is a business Mm -hmm. and the business survives depending on whether it makes a profit or it doesn't. Um, and the media have just gone the way of our culture, which is, you know, to to um, to embrace um, shallowness, vapidity, obscenity, um, coarseness, um, what the Roman emperors of old used to call bread and circuses. I think. Um, so I think the media is can, being a good journalist can be a tremendously noble craft. But I think that the state of the media is in a state of decrepitude and you can see it everywhere. And insofar as I've ever been able to do anything good working on Catholic newspapers and websites, um, what I've done is uh, I've gone looking for good secular examples, and they're very few and far between, of really reputable media operations, newspapers or, or whatever, and tried to replicate the essentials of what the traditional professional objective media would do but but i i think if someone came to me today and said do you think i should work in the media i'd say you ought to think long and hard about it yeah you really ought to think long and hard about it about it and i'm sad to say that because the media is obviously toxic now i mean most of the the destructive forces aimed against marriage and family um, young men, young women, children, are coming through the media. We have a problem on our hands that we didn't have a hundred years ago: the sexualization of girls. Yeah, it's a it's a massive problem, and it's increasing. Um, that's just one example. Um, you can point to so many things which are toxic in the media, and yet the media. I'm, I would say to someone, I'd be very careful about going into the media. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it needs to be reformed. Mm. So it, it needs people who are st- strong, tough in themselves, brave, 
strong in their own identity who can go in and who can help to reorient the media back towards being what it is meant to be, which is a force for the building up of society and the common good of society um, without being toxic, destructive, which it is largely at the moment. I mean, I, I'm just astonished by the standards of broadcast television at the moment. I, I can't find anything on there worth watching yeah, except for I Rick agree. Stein's cooking program. That's <laughs> I it. Agree. I love watching Rick Stein on TV, but outside that, I can't see anything. I don't, I don't watch the ABC News. I mean, to me, the ABC and SBS are like uh, propaganda arms mm. of the toxic culture, the politically correct, inner suburban elites who are separated from so much reality and they believe the strangest things about either the environment or about the Catholic church or about people they, they intellectually disagree with. Um, I don't watch the ABC anymore, the national broadcaster, almost never do I watch them and SBS occasionally there's an interesting movie on, but half the time I can't watch the movies on SBS because they're pornography. And I, I, you know, for men, pornography is toxic. So I'm not going to watch any of that stuff. Um, and not to mention that whoever produced it is, is exploitative in the first instance. They had to exploit some poor, vulnerable individuals to produce that sort of material. Um, so um, probably going a bit off track in this because I'm good at because I'm good at pontificating. But um, <laughs> the media needs to be reformed, or and the problem is when you remove the, the media from society, things can go very bad very quickly because those in power and those who are corrupt no longer have anyone to scrutinize them justice is not seen to operate the yeah. media has a role to fill but it's absent without leave pretty much at the moment mm. yeah and i've shared with you before peter but i don't think i've shared with our audience that i studied journalism at university that was my degree should i end the interview now i'm leaving <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I mean everything you say is is true. I I left after three years feeling very disheartened. I sort of went in optimistic, um, having done a couple of years of volunteer mission work and wanting to be somebody who helped to reform Catholic media. But I just felt extremely disappointed and disheartened, and the opportunities were not really there for me at the time, which is why I didn't take that path. But I'm thinking even. Even before that, uh, when I was in year 11 and 12, I took English extension as a subject at high school, as many people who want to go and do journalism or communications would take. Mm. Um, and at the time, I didn't know any better, but you know, whenever we were doing analytic works on a, on a you know, literal, literature classic, whether it be Shakespeare or something more modern like I don't know what mm. we did, like Heart of Darkness and To Kill a Mockingbird and those sorts of things. But it always had to be analyze it through a feminist lens, mm. analyze it through a Marxist lens, mm. analyze it through an imperialist lens. And those were our options. There was no other kind of analysis other than mm. those, which are all radical left examples of how to look at a piece of literature. You're, you're talking in this podcast to public enemy number one. And the bad news is, uh, Chris, in uh, 20 or 30 years, you're going to be public enemy number one. And the reason is I am um, a white middle-aged male 
who, according to the sort of wild conspiracy, the, the, the ideology, the ideologies which dominate the humanities now, we're responsible for everything that's gone wrong with history. We're the enemy. Yeah. That's it. And, and therefore, um, we're the ones who are supposed to be racists or misogynists or we hate, you know, uh, queer people and gays and trans people. And uh, this is the way we are universally portrayed. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. It's, it's really conspiracy theory, but it's, it, it shows the power of ideology. Um, John Maynard Keynes, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist, um, whose uh, economic theories uh, were very influential after the depression, um, after the, yeah, after the depression, the great crash of 1927, I think, 27 or 29, something you can Google out there. He once said that the power of, vested in, uh, the, the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared with the influence of ideas. And I think he was right. I, I, I can't, say what his econ whether his economic theories were effective or not but he was absolutely correct in his understanding that the real battle is the battle of ideas and that's why the media are so decisively important mm. and in the context of the 20th and 21st century that's why they've ended up being so destructive yeah because it's the battle of ideas and they have embraced the worst ideas um just to give you one relevant example which dates back to about 1930 it'll be the 1930s could be around about 1932 in the 1930s joseph stalin decided that he would deliberately starve um, huge proportions of the ukrainian population to death he wanted the wheat that was growing in ukraine because ukraine was considered the bread bowl of eastern europe and he did. He sent what was then called the NKVD, which were the forerunners of the KGB, yep. in, out into the fields of, of Ukraine. And they set up machine gun posts and prevented the Ukrainians from, they, they forced them to harvest the wheat, but they prevented them from keeping it. They took it all you know, back for Russia. As a result, millions of people died. We don't know the numbers. We never will. The numbers could be as high as 12 million deliberately starved to death. I have met survivors who told me of people starving to death in winter and the bodies stacked outside, mm. frozen like logs. The point I'm mentioning this is a young journalist called Malcolm Muggeridge was in Mo Moscow at that time. And he was a journalist for a very left-wing paper back in England called the Manchester Guardian. They were great supporters of Stalinist communism and, and um, he heard these stories of the Ukrainian famine, which lasted for two or three years, and he decided to go and look. And he found it, and he saw it. He saw it happening. He saw the, the, the starvation, the bodies, and everything. So he started sending reports back to filing copy uh, back to his newspaper. And they said, it can't be happening. You're lying. And they sacked him. He was an actual witness to the deliberate starvation of millions of people and the newspapers sacked him. Now, that's an extreme example, but that is actually kind of demonstrative, demonstrative of um, the arrogance of the media today who just refuse to accept that the world can be any different to what they learned in Journalism 101 at, you know, inside in um, 
such and such school of communications or media studies or something yeah. like that. They're, they're, um, they're, they're, they are antithetical to religious belief. If it is a traditional Christian form of belief, they're antithetical to concepts like marriage, fidelity in marriage, exclusivity in marriage. They're, um, they're convinced that, that no woman has any real value to her life or is important if she's having children and having a family. That's a second, it's a legitimate option, but it's a sec second or a third or a fourth best option. Her real value comes when she's breaking the glass ceiling. They're antithetical to so many things and so destructive. But the situation is not hopeless. Um, it just means that we need to recognize the reality of the situation that we face as a society. The very fact, I mean, we are having the legalized killing of the elderly introduced around Australia, a system which is obviously open to severe abuse, mm. abuse because of government budget lines or the lady who wants to ensure that her children get a good private education and she wants the money that her mother's leaving her in her will now. Euthanasia is open to abuse left, right and centre. And the media, who should be the public watchdogs, are not scrutinising anything. They're not subjecting the people who are saying, we should be able to kill people under certain conditions to any scrutiny that's remotely meaningful. The media are failing on the job in their most basic responsibilities. So I don't have a very high opinion of them, to be frank. Not at all. That's it. And so in, in this messy, secular milieu, what relevance does, does Catholic media, what, what you're doing, what the Catholic Weekly is doing, and, you know, many other organisations around the world, which are, albeit are much, much smaller than mainstream yeah. media, but yeah. what relevance does Catholic media have? What difference can it make? Is it making a difference? What do you say? Good question. Some parts of it I'm not entirely certain how to answer, but I can say I think that it's extremely important. We, we know, and, and the Second Vatican Council understood this because it produced documents on it out yeah. of the Council that the, the means of communication, the flow of information is decisively important. And the problem is whoever, flow, whoever controls the flow of information therefore has vast power. You don't need guns, you don't need secret police. If you control the flow of information, you have a tremendous influence for good or for bad on your society and your culture and so on and so forth. The Catholic media therefore are very important. The secular media obviously have abandoned coverage of religion. Um, that trend was completed, you know, 10 years ago. I think one of the last religious affairs correspondents on any newspapers in Australia retired. Um, and yet, we know that religious faith is the single most important fact of life for billions of people around the world in one shape yeah. or another. But the media, they've got a blind spot. They can't accept that it's important. And they, they tend to assume that anyone who does believe in any traditional form of religious faith, they're not really that smart. They're not sophisticated. Right. They think we're the sophisticated ones. We're interviewing all the important people, the movie stars, the politicians, and the activists and so on and so forth. The Catholic media has a very important role to play because um, 
there is a, a process going on now, um, we, we, which you could call the crisis of modernity. And it's clear that in very general terms, at least, there is a worldwide confrontation, if you want to put it that way, between faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, and the opposite, the anti-culture of modernity, which is often a culture of death. And that struggle is going to determine an awful lot about the future. And the Catholic media, therefore, might be, because the, the church, despite all its own obvious faults, and I, you know, the, the obvious one is things like the abuse phenomenon that, um, you know, I've been reporting on for about 25 years now, mm. it's been going on. Um, the Catholic church needs to find a way to communicate, not just to its own members, but to ordinary men and women and young people out there in our society who are realizing that what they're being offered by the secular media is a bunch of hogwash. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't give you fulfillment. Um, that life does have a greater purpose, that there is a deeper meaning, that that purpose can be discovered. Um, and that a God who is a God of love is the answer to the question that is every human life. I think I'm paraphrasing Pope John Paul using that line. So the Catholic media have a very important role. And one of the ways they do it is to communicate the living reality of the church and the good things about the church. The Catholic media have not done a good job of that traditionally. The Catholic media has been a kind of a tame lapdog for generations, um, often run by religious and priests. It's only re very, very recently that laity have uh, begun to be very active in the media. I still think the state of the Catholic media is very poor, sometimes, often because there's a lack of resources in your average diocese to devote to it. But overall, I think um, the Catholic media is very important because it can show ordinary Catholics that they're not stupid, that their general assumptions about life and the church are correct, that this is where they're meant to be that they're following the path that is has a higher purpose and meaning for them. But it can also show ordinary men and women who have no faith or some faith, or they belong, they have another faith. It can, it can help them to discover the truth because that's, that's really its job. And if it's not doing that, then it should be shut up and, uh, and wound down. Um, so my, my neck of the, the media world is a very unusual corner of the woods. Um, but it's, it's one that I enjoy tremendously. I find it really stimulating because I get to report on the church. I get to see what's happening in what I think is the most important area of life. I'd prefer reporting on the church compared to, um, interviewing rock stars who's, or movie stars yeah. who strike me as generally being a very boring group of people to interview because I don't think many of them have much that's actually very interesting to say about anything at all maybe that's a bit extreme i don't know <laughs> and uh peter you, you you are giving some hope there which is which is good to hear what what would you say ideally 
Catholic journalism and Catholic media would look like in the way that it interacts with not only the church, but broader society? Well, the first thing I would say is that I really think that a really good first-class Catholic media um, needs to be independent of the church. Um, the great problem with the media that's operated by the church is it's too susceptible to a thousand and one restrictions. And it might be um, because uh, Bishop A does not want Bishop B to be seen saying something. It might be because the Vicar General doesn't like um, this particular religious congregation being included in you know, a report or something. The, the, that is a real problem. Um, I've seen it time and time again. I'll give you an example. I know of an editor of a newspaper here in Australia, a Catholic publication, who was forced by diocesan bureaucrats under the pontificate of Benedict XVI to adhere to the following editorial policy, which I've seen uh, in relation to coverage of Pope Benedict. And the, the policy, which I can quote from memory because I've read the piece of paper that it was on, was only if he dies can he appear on page one of this publication. I've seen it. Wow. That's the sort of restriction that, that uh, you know, diocesan bureaucrats or people with all sorts of agendas can impose. Yeah, that's um, actually mind-blowing, like how blatant that is. During, during the actual pontificate of Benedict XVI, the editor of an official Catholic publication here in Australia, I won't say who it was or what the publication was, had that policy imposed upon that publication by um, the bureaucrats of the finance office who thought um, that because some priests in that diocese were upset at having photographs or stories to do with Benedict the 16th in their diocese and publication, because they thought he was ultra conservative and, you know, not really relevant to the church in Australia. Mm. So the, the church bureaucrat, the financial, financial bureaucrats of the diocese, who thought that they were just smoothing everything over and keeping some of the clergy happy in their diocese, imposed the policy. I've seen the policy. I've read it. I've read the paper on it. And um, someone gave me a copy. And I've still got it. And in relation to Pope Benedict, only if he dies. Four words. So that's why it's not hard to remember exactly verbatim. Um, could he appear in any shape or form on the front cover or the or page one of the diocesan publication. And here is a man who was one of the most extraordinary figures in the modern papacy. In fact, I would say in several centuries, who was re widely regarded as one of the most gifted theologians of the age with deep insights into the current crisis of the church and society. And diocesan bureaucrats forced the editor to adhere to that policy. That's the reality of what the Catholic media has to go through sometimes. That's amazing. So the, the Catholic media needs to be independent. That being said, it, um, the temptation is for it to become a kind of a destructive force. Yeah. 
So it needs to be staffed by lay men and lay women who are very well formed in their faith. Yeah. They don't need to be theologians. They don't need to be philosophers. Those things, of course, would be some of a, somewhat of a benefit. But they need to be well-formed, reasonably well-formed in their faith and to know the craft of journalism and to be able to discuss intelligently without those sorts of restrictions what's going on in the church. Because effectively, what those diocesan bureaucrats who imposed that policy on that editor were saying was, well, the baptised don't have any right to know what Benedict is saying or what he thinks or what he's doing. They were, they were behaving like, not like bureaucrats, but like um, authoritarian officials. Um, so the, the, the Catholic media needs to be independent. It needs to be staffed by uh, well-formed men and women who are good at, at the basic craft of journalism. And it needs to be very, very careful because the job of a Catholic media or a media reporting on the Catholic Church in, you know, in, in the spirit of the Catholic Church needs to um, needs above all other things what the contemporary media don't, media don't have, and that's humility and not succumb to the temptation to become their own magisterium. So this is um, an area where the laity and the hierarchy could work hand in hand. And I am personally convinced that really what we need in this country is a national Catholic media or a national responsible, reasonable um, uh, reporting of the Catholic Church and what it says and what it does and its good works, which is not merely a propaganda piece and which is able to subject the church to scrutiny mm. when it needs to be subjected to scrutiny because the church is, after all, a human institution just as much as it is a divine one. Mm. And it's the human dimension to the church which always gets it into trouble. So, um, and, and there needs to be that freedom of the lay vocation um, to, to get that going. And I'm convinced that there is, even despite the fact that we have declining mass numbers and, and so on and so forth because of the nature of the times in which we live, I'm convinced that there is a sustainable market for a national Catholic media entity, at least for, um, I'd say, another 20, 25, 30 years, at least in this country on current trends. And that, that, has, that uh, voice could have a very, very important role for families, for marriage, for young people, for family life. And it should look completely different to standard diocesan media that exist in Australia today. I know, <clears throat> I know one publication, which I won't name, in this country. And um, it's, it's valued by those to whom it is consigned in that diocese because of the boxes it comes in. When they receive it, they empty the publication into a bin and keep the boxes because apparently the boxes are really good for storage. But that's but people look at that publication and go, well, there's nothing interesting in here. There's just nothing nothing relevant yeah. to what the some of the issues we're discussing here. Yeah. And there is a tremendous fear in the Catholic Church of um, being countercultural and 
being countercultural is equated to being um, to having gone rogue. Mm. So I, I think that's a problem that a lot of people in significant positions in the church in Australia um, suffer from, um, which is they f they're afraid of the secular media because of the experience of the last 25 years. And they're afraid of an independent Catholic media because they think it could possibly end up um, um, undermining their authority and so on. And I say, no, we need an independent Catholic media, but it needs to be faithful to the church. And, and I can think of people like um, um, Michael Voris, the popular American, um, what is he, a vlogger or a podcaster I, or something? I guess he's a, he's a journalist. And yeah, I mean, he comes from a, from a TV background, so he is a journalist. I saw something that um, he issued recently, which was just beyond, beyond repeating. He was defaming bishops and... Uh, and so on. Um, and I, I was just amazed. So the Catholic media can't possibly go down that sort of uh, track of um, effectively lapsing into being just negative and reactionary and critical of everyone and saying they're not good enough. It needs to build up, but it needs to do it in a way that it's probably not able to do in the Catholic Church in Australia at the moment. You can't run a media where people you can't run a good Catholic media where people only like the box that it's delivered in. And that was the director of an agency who told me that he loves the boxes when he receives it because he uses them for storing other things or where diocesan bureaucrats, you know, eliminate the Vicar of Christ from the publication. That's, that's just, that's, you, you can't, so it needs to be independent. It needs to be outside diocesan control but it needs to be run very responsibly and very prudently in that regard without being um, simply in a propaganda vehicle. Yeah. So there's a high level of virtue required on anybody who contributes to um, a publication like that um, for it to meet that, that happy medium. And I mean, it's, it's, it's the golden mean of virtue, like Aristotle spoke about that that's yes. required for the enterprise to be successful. Um, Peter, we're already, we're already our society, our our society is screaming out for a voice like that. And we, yeah. and, and, and when in, in Australia in general, I say, we're not doing it. I would mm -hmm. say, I think the Archdiocese of Sydney, well, I'm really lucky to work here because I think the Archdiocese of Sydney is in many ways light years out in front yeah. of the rest of the, the, the church in Australia. But, um, but um, I, I, I think that um, we, we need a Catholic media that is credible because it talks frankly about the real issues that are affecting people's lives. There are young men and women out there who say, well, I'm gay and, and, and I don't understand this and why is the church relevant to me? There are families suffering from the pain of divorce or whatever, you know, addiction, um, our society is in a bad way and the Catholic media have such an important job to do mm. and we should be allowed to do it properly because there are gifted people around who can do it. Yeah. It's an interesting time to be working in this field. Mm. There you yeah, go. You. I've spoken too long. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the time together um, and you've given 
really great insight, somewhat sobering, but also um, there, there's a there's a twinkle of hope in there too, which we're grateful for. And, and there's lots to pray about as well, I think, for everybody who has uh, listened or watched this the conversation. Um, so Peter, we'd like you to issue a challenge as we get every guest on Maximus to do to towards the men listening or watching um, something that can help us in our strive for greatness over the next couple of weeks. How would you like to challenge the Maximus men today? That's a good question, Chris. I was, I was thinking about that before I came on. And, um, I, you know, I'm sorry, I can't think of anything really funny or hilarious um, for guys to do out there, but um, I'd issue two challenges. One is we're men, we're husbands, we're fathers, we're brothers, we're sons. Do something tonight or after you hear this podcast. Um, for the woman in your life, it may be your mother, it may be your wife, it may be your daughter, it may be your sister. Do something that you wouldn't normally do or don't would not normally be inclined to do. An act of uh, kindness, an act of affirmation, an act of love. To let her know that in your eyes, she is beautiful. As your daughter, your sister, your mother, your wife, whatever. That's one I would say. So conquer yourself and do something, you know, conquer your laziness and go and do something. The, the other thing I would um, suggest is, which I think is exceptionally difficult, I'm certain this is exceptionally difficult. If we're going to be men of faith, we have to pray. That's part of the business of being a Christian. Yes. Think of someone you cannot stand, someone who is really nasty to you, someone who is deceitful about you or has expressed hatred towards you or whom you find it impossible to love and pray for that person. I don't care what the prayer is, a short, simple prayer from the heart. Mm. We're supposed to love our enemies. I think that's a really hard thing to do because I'm a man and if I have an enemy, I want to punch him in the nose. Right. But But you can't do that. But if we're meant to be Christian men, Say a prayer for someone you really can't stand or who really is nasty to you. Pray for them. That's what we're meant to do. So that, that, that's it. Those are my two challenges, the women and your enemies. Those are two, two really fantastic challenges that I think get to the heart of who we are as men. And I don't think, I don't think you can't improve morally and spiritually by doing them. So thank, thank you for those ones, Pete. That's I hope. Great. Um, Peter, can I invite you to say a quick closing prayer for everybody watching and listening? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I wasn't expecting that, but I'm I'm happy to. Surprise. <laughs> oh, well, here's me. I've just been saying how we're men of prayer. Yeah. Um, all right. In the name of our Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Jesus, I believe in you. You are the Messiah, the one that Israel yearned and longed for. You are the fulfillment of God's promise of love. And you have made me and you have made all us who are men, given us lives. You are the son of the most high. 
we can't change ourselves often because we're too much our own enemies. We fall time and time again, and it becomes discouraging. But Jesus, send your spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, into our hearts as men, as fathers, husbands, brothers, sons, workers, wherever we are. Make us yours. Make us strong for all those you have placed in our lives. Forgive me for the weakness of my faith. But when I am strong, when I am weak, I am strong. So, Lord, for all these men, all the guys out there who might be listening to us, um, I pray for, for them and for us and for all our families and our lives and the work that we do, and especially Chris and all of his colleagues and their production of this, this, uh, this podcast for men. We glorify your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Sorry, I'm not that great at impromptu prayers, but... No, that that was good. And thank you so much, Peter, for this entire conversation. It's been heartfelt. You've been vulnerable. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your wisdom. I'm sure the men will get a lot out of of this chat. Thanks to all you guys who have watched and listened. Thanks for um, for tuning in. Please invite your friends and family, any men who you know might benefit from these conversations to tune in. Um, and also, if you can't watch it on video, we are putting the audio out on a variety of different podcasting platforms. Um, so stay tuned to our Facebook page and also our e-newsletter for uh, links on on how to get to those. So everybody have a fantastic day, afternoon, whatever time you are watching or listening to this. Um, And God bless you all. Thanks again, Pete. Thanks, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. You too. Bye.